Chapter Twenty Three of the Short Line War by Merwin Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three: The Surrender. Jim looked up from a desk that was piled high with letters and memoranda. West, what do you think of that? He said, handing a typewritten sheet across to the other desk. It was an order addressed to Madison, reinstating J. Donahue in the passenger service of the M. and T. "'He deserves it,' replied Harvey, briefly. "'Shall I send it on?' "'Yes.' Each turned back to his work. Such interruptions were rare now in Jim's office in the Washington building. For any man of wide and commanding interests to drop his routine, even for a day or so, means a busy time catching up later on. And in the case of Jim, who had lost all told the better part of two weeks, the accumulation was almost disheartening, particularly to Harvey. Although he had come to Chicago early Friday morning, spending only one night at the Oakwood Club, it was not until Monday that Harvey was able to resume work. In the meantime, he had neither seen nor heard from Catherine. During that long night at the club he had planned, in a feverish, restless way, to drive to her home in the morning. But the morning saw him speeding to Chicago, weak and nerveless. During Friday and Saturday, he was confined to his room by order of the physician. But on Sunday, a bright day, he walked out. His first letter to Catherine was written Saturday afternoon. It was a simple statement, a manly plea for what he desired more than anything else in the world, and as he read it over, he felt that it must have an effect. That it deeply moved Catherine was shown by the reply which came on the following Tuesday. She did not waste words, but there was in her little note an honest directness that left Harvey helpless to reply. She made no concealment of her love, though not stating it, but repeating practically what she had said that afternoon at the club. Again it was, We must wait, even indefinitely. Harvey read the note many times. Tuesday night he sat down with a wild idea of answering it, but his inner sense of delicacy restrained him. She had put the matter in such a light, practically throwing herself on his generosity, his love for her, that he realized that to write again would only make her duty harder. And in the intervals when Harvey's passionate impatience gave way to calmer reflection, he knew that he loved her the better for her strength. Wednesday and Thursday passed. Harvey's complete recovery was slow, though he worked hard at his desk. Even the news of Jim's victory seemed to have little effect on him. He was listless. His work contained little of the old vigor and energy, and there were rings under his eyes. Jim said nothing, but he had not been blind to Catherine's telltale interest when Harvey was found. He knew Harvey, even better than the young man suspected. From the nature of his work and experience, Jim had learned to read human nature. Probably that faculty had much to do with his success, and the fact that in Harvey's makeup were certain of his own rugged characteristics had drawn him to Harvey more than to any other man of his acquaintance. This, in addition to the one touch of sentiment that had influenced Jim's whole career, for he could not forget that Harvey was the son of the only woman he had ever loved. Thursday evening, Jim sat down to his solitary dinner with a feeling of utter loneliness. There came back to him, clearer than for a quarter of a century, all the yearning, the unrest, the self-abandon of his love for Ethel Harvey. The years had rounded him and built up in him a sturdy character. 
He stood before the world a man of solid achievement, calm, successful, satisfied. His spreading interests, his intricate affairs, the prestige and credit of his position, these had combined to concentrate his energies, to hold day and night his thoughts, crowding out alike dreams and memories. He had given the best of his life, not for gold, but for power, credit, influence. The struggle had fascinated him. He had risen to each new emergency with a thrill at the thought of grappling with men of metal, of calling into play each muscle of the system he had organized. But as he left the table and walked with unelastic step into the library, there rose before him the picture of Harvey, weak and pale, but filled, nevertheless, with the vigor of youthful blood, stretched on a couch, while over him, gentle in her womanhood, Catherine was bending. As the scene came back, he again moved through it, and again, as he turned to go, he caught a glimpse of her eyes, and he saw in them the look that no man can view without a prayer, a look that melted through the crust of years and left Jim's heart bare. It was dark in the library, but he cared not. He sat before the wide table staring at the shadows. For the first time in many years he was far from stocks and from the world. He tried madly, desperately, then humbly, to fight down the other picture, that of the only other woman whose eyes had reached his heart. But the struggle was too great, and with head buried on his outstretched arms, Jim gave way to a floodburst of memory that poured out years and moments. Some time later he raised his head. Habits so fixed as Jim's will assert themselves, even in moments of stress. And now what was almost an instinct urged him to such action as would even slightly ease the strain. Harvey was his hope. Harvey's happiness and Catherine's was all that appealed to him now, and so with set teeth he rang for his carriage. Jim Weeks had faced many problems. He had gone lightly into many battles, but never before had his energies been so set upon a single object. Jim drove direct to Harvey's rooms, and finding them dark, walked in, lighted up, drew down the curtains, and sank wearily into the easy chair. He was by this time near his old self, save for the wrinkles about his eyes, which seemed deeper. He had not before been in Harvey's quarters, and he looked about with almost nervous interest. Later he picked up the evening paper and tried to read, but dropped it and took to walking about the room. On the mantel was the Kodak picture of Catherine, and he paused to look at it. It so held his interest that he did not hear the door open five minutes later. Harvey closed the door and threw his overcoat on a chair. "'Beg pardon for keeping you waiting,' he said, apparently not surprised at Jim's presence. "'If I had known you were here, I'd have come back earlier. Been out for a little exercise.' Jim nodded and turned back to the photograph. "'This is Porter's daughter, isn't it?' he said abruptly. With a brief, yes, Harvey threw himself into a chair by the table. After a moment, Jim turned and stood with his back to the mantel, looking at Harvey. Then he crossed over and sat down. West, I've been thinking of you tonight, and I've come over to have a talk with you. You are in bad shape. You show it plain enough. If it were any other time, if we weren't already so far behind with our work, I'd send you off somewhere for a vacation. You need it. Harvey smiled wearily. A fellow can't expect to get over a row like that in a day or so. 
I'll be all right in a week. Look here. Jim leaned back and looked squarely at Harvey. Why don't you own up? Why don't you tell me about it? It's, it's her, isn't it? Indicating the photograph. Harvey returned Jim's gaze with an expression of some surprise. Then he leaned forward and looked at the carpet, resting his elbows on his knees. Of course, Jim continued, it isn't exactly in my line, but I might be able to bring some common sense to bear on it. When a man's bothered about a girl, he is likely to need a little common sense. I understand, of course, if you'd rather not talk about it. There was a long silence. Harvey broke it. I don't know, but what you're right. I haven't known just what to do. Things are pretty much mixed up. You want me to tell you? Jim nodded. It isn't that she doesn't care for me. I think she does. You know, she's always honest. But somehow it strikes her as a question of duty. She loves her father, and she feels that she hasn't been loyal to him. I've written to her. I've used up all my arguments. But she puts it in such a way that I can't say another word without actually hurting her. To her mind, it's just a plain case of right and wrong, and that settles it. You know, she's that kind of a girl. Yes, said Jim, I suppose she is. I've gone over and over it until I'm all at sea. I don't seem to have a grip on myself. I can't write to her or go to see her. It would be simply dishonorable after the way she has talked to me and written. Harvey rose and walked to the mantel, resting his elbows on it and looking at the photograph. When was it? asked Jim, that day in the Oakwood Club. Yes. And you know she loves you? I didn't say I knew it. Well, then, I do. At this, Harvey turned, but Jim's face was quiet. Yes, I know it. You say there is nothing in the way but her father? That is all I know about. I can ease your mind on that. I had a short talk with Porter Tuesday, and I think he's a little ashamed of himself. He told me that he was against the kidnapping scheme, and that he has broken with McNally. Probably Miss Porter has had a talk with him by this time. I don't see how they could help it. And if she has, I guess some of her ideas have changed a little. Jim paused, but as Harvey stood facing the mantel without speaking, he went on. There's just one thing for you to do, West. You go down there and begin all over again. If she's got any pride, she won't write to you. Why, man, any girl would expect. You've got to. Understand? You've got to. As he spoke, Jim rose and stood erect. Then, as Harvey still was silent, he took to pacing the floor. Harvey was looking, not at the picture, but through it into a calm summer night on the river, when Catherine had given him that first glimpse of herself, the woman he loved and was always to love. He saw her beside him in the trap, watching with bright, eager eyes the striding bays, and later tugging at his watch-fob. He saw her in the gray twilight bending down over him and saying in that low, thrilling voice, "'We don't know what may happen. We only know what is right for us now.' As he slowly turned around, he felt a mist come over his eyes, and he was not ashamed. Jim stopped and stood looking at him. Harvey asked simply, "'Can you spare me over Sunday?' "'You'd better go tomorrow.' "'But the work?' "'I don't want to hear about that.' Jim's voice was gruff. You take the morning train. Don't come back till you're ready. Their eyes met in embarrassed silence. 
Then Harvey sat at the table and wrote a few words. "'Will you have your man send that tonight?' he asked, handing it to Jim. "'It's a telegram.' Jim took it, slowly folded it, and put it into his pocket. He reached for his coat, and Harvey helped him put it on. Several times Jim started to speak, but it was not until one glove was on and his hat in his hand that he got it out. "'I'll tell you, West. I—' A man learns something from experience, one way or another. I've known what such things are. I know what it means to love a woman and to try to live without her. He suddenly gripped Harvey's hand, holding it for a moment, with a silent, nervous pressure, and Harvey felt the perspiration on his palm. I made a mistake, West, and I've paid for it. I'm paying for it now. If I hadn't, if I had made it right, she would have been... You would have... Words seemed to choke him, and with a strange expression, he loosened his grip and started toward the door. Halfway, he turned. As he stood there, stalwart yet humble, a new pathos crept into his features. West, a man doesn't get much in this world if he waits for things to straighten themselves out. Good night. Before Harvey could recover from a certain awkwardness, Jim had gone. He could hear the heavy tread on the stairs... Then came the slam of a carriage door, and he knew that Jim was going back to the big empty house. The next morning, Friday, Harvey took the early train for Truesdale. He picked up a carriage at the station and drove rapidly out to Porter's house. From the porte cochere he hastened to the door, rang the bell, and asked for her. In the wide hall he stood, coat still buttoned, hat in hand, looking eagerly up the stairway. In a moment she appeared— he could not know that she had been watching for him. Coming slowly down the stairs, not hesitating, but holding back with a touch of the old dignity. For the moment her beauty, her strong womanhood, gave Harvey a sense of awe, and he stood looking up at her, not knowing that his eyes told the story. And then, as she stayed on the lower step, a quiet assertiveness came over him, and he stepped forward. "'Catherine,' he said, and extended both hands." She still hesitated, looking at him with eyes that seemed to question, to read his as if searching for something she feared might not be there. Then she took the last step and stood before him. "'Catherine,' he repeated, but stopped again, for now her eyes were shining on him, with a look that thrilled and exalted him. And with sudden joy in his heart, he drew her to him. End of chapter 23 End of The Short Line War by Merwin Webster